Well, this morning for our, our time of scripture together, we're going to be taking a look at the Gospel of John. And so if you brought Bibles or you have an app on your phone and you want to follow along, please feel free to do that. We're looking at, at John chapter 17, starting at verse 20. And it says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may, may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those who have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. And we're going to take a look at that in just a couple minutes so you can keep your finger there or keep your app open or whatever you need to do for this morning. We're going to look back at that passage again. You know, for all the technology that we are utilizing in order to be out here, the downside is that I can't show you the video that I really wanted to show you for this morning's service. However, this video was actually just one woman speaking, and so I'm going to share a little bit of it with you. Millions and millions of people saw it, so you may have already seen it. It was a fake press conference that was done by a woman named Adley Stump, and it is absolutely hilarious. Keep in mind that, that this was done back in April before things got, um, well, as contentious as they are now. She starts by saying that she does not understand why everyone is having such a hard time following the rules regarding the pandemic. And she says that she doesn't understand why everyone is having such a hard time because the rules are so clear. And then this is what she goes on to say. First, you must not leave the house for any reason, unless, of course, you have a reason, and then you may leave the house. All stores are closed except those stores that are open. And all stores must close unless, of course, they need to stay open. This virus is deadly, but don't be afraid of it. It can only affect those who are vulnerable and also those who are not vulnerable. We should stay locked down until the virus stops infecting people, and it will only stop infecting people once enough of us get infected that we build up immunity. So it's very important that we get infected and also do not get infected. This virus has no effect on children except for those children in which it affects. Schools are closed, so you need to homeschool your children unless you need to send them to school because you are not home. You can school your children using various portals and online classrooms, unless, of course, you have poor internet, more than one child, only one computer, or you are working from home. Masks are useless in protecting against the virus, but you must wear them in order to save lives. It's so funny. This, this clip goes on for four minutes of this. And I, it is really, it's worth your time. It's pretty funny if you want to check it out later. But it's only funny because it is so true. Isn't that how we feel much of the time these days? You turn on this channel and it says this, and then you turn on that channel and it says that. Now, in all fairness, this is called the novel coronavirus, novel, which means new. 
So the lack of clarity is somewhat understandable, given that we have never seen this before. However, we have also managed to politicize this virus, which only serves to complicate things further, which is actually, a well, that's a pretty nice way of saying it. It hasn't just complicated things, it has worsened this vitriolic division that seems to be consuming us these days. This side is saying one thing, and that side is saying another thing, and it's it's all just kind of coming out as noise at this point anyway. So who do we listen to? Who are we supposed to trust? It just feels like noise. And that is why and how we ended up with the summer sermon series that we are kicking off today. Do you remember the game telephone that we used to play as kids? One person would say something and then they would whisper it into the ear of the next person who would whisper it into the ear of the next person and and it would go around the circle until at the end, it was always something entirely different than what the original person said, right? Well, life right now feels like we are in a terrible game of telephone gone wrong. So we are going back to the source. Our series for this summer is called, or the rest of the summer is called Red Letters. So for those who are not familiar with that term, Red Letters, Way back in 1889, there was a Bible published that would later be nicknamed the Red Letter Bible. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> it wasn't some kind of new translation. Nothing was added. Nothing was subtracted. It was the Bible that everyone knew and loved. The Bible was printed in the same black font or print that we were used to, except for the words that Jesus spoke, which they put in red. And so people who have been in the church for a long time grew up knowing that when you come across those red letters, you had better listen up. And I think now, more than ever, we could all stand to go back to the source, to drown out some of the noise around us and to go back to the red letters. And so we are going to spend the rest of our summer taking a look at what Jesus had to say. Not the things that other people wrote about what Jesus had to say, not the thoughts or the ideas that Jesus' followers had and then translated for us. Not even the ideals that we saw Jesus live by, but the actual words that came out of his mouth to us and for us. Now, to be clear, because people's words very easily get twisted these days, I'm not saying that we should cut ourselves off from the rest of the world, listening to no one or nothing else, especially during a health crisis, God gave us brains to use in funneling and filtering the information that we receive from the world around us. But I'm also saying that even if or when Jesus didn't speak to a specific topic that we find ourselves dealing with today, he was clear and consistent in how we are to engage the world, what we are to care about, and how we are to treat each other. And I happen to think that we could all use a little refresher course on that these days. And so for this morning, we are starting at the end. Everything else in the world feels a little backwards and upside down, so why not start this series at the end? If you want to follow along, again, we're looking at <clears throat> the Gospel of John. If you are new to us online this morning or maybe brand new to the Bible and you have no idea where to start the Gospel of John is a great place. You can read the entire Gospel of John in about two hours. In fact, even for those of us who have been in church for a long time, 
If you haven't sat down and read the Gospel of John in a while, I would encourage you to do that too because there's some, there's some pretty good stuff in, in there that I think we could stand to use or stand to hear right now. Now, for the context of our passage for this morning, chapter 17, this passage takes place just before Jesus goes down to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's just before Jesus is betrayed. And so that means that it's just before the end of his ministry and and right before the end of his life here on earth. And in chapter 17, part of which we read just a few minutes ago, we have the great privilege of sitting in on Jesus' prayer time. Have you ever stopped to think about what a privilege that is? That in this text, we get this front row seat to Jesus' prayer time. Now, there's always room to grow in this area, but I know that prayer is something that has meant a lot to us here at Hillcrest. Prayer is a huge part of what we do together. Because of that, one of the things that I have missed most about our not being together in the sanctuary is that communal prayer time. If you're new here, each Sunday morning, usually when we're in the sanctuary, we would have a time of prayer where, where we would just open it up to anybody who wanted to pray aloud for whatever it was that was on their heart that day. It is a privilege to get to do that, isn't it? Not only that we get to pray with and for each other, but it is a privilege to get to listen to somebody else talk to God. And then if you have ever had someone pray for you, right in front of you, you know what an incomparable blessing that is. To have somebody come to God, to have somebody speak to God on your behalf, It's such a humbling experience. And that is what we get a a window into right here in this passage. Both a a glimpse at Jesus in prayer with his Father and the privilege of listening in on on, uh, Jesus coming to God on our behalf, talking to God about what he wants for us. And so I want you to hear this text this morning again, but this time knowing that context for it. He says, my prayer, again, this is Jesus' prayer time with his Father. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. So keep in mind, starting in verse 20 here, that we're, we're kind of walking into the middle of Jesus' prayer. If you had your actual Bible with you and you could see the whole text, you would see that there's a whole lot of red text before this one, before this passage or this verse in 20 here. And so we're, we're kind of coming into the middle of Jesus' prayer here. The first few verses, Jesus prays for himself, that he would bring God glory. And then in verses 6 through 19, Jesus is praying on behalf of his disciples. And so in verse 20, when Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. The them alone that he's talking about there is his disciples, whom he just finished praying for. And the second half of that sentence is about us. It is about the church to come. It is about all of the people who will one day come to believe in Jesus. And what is his prayer for us? 
for all believers across all generations. His prayer for us is that all of them may be one. And Jesus' prayer for us is not just for oneness. It is for the same kind of oneness that Jesus himself has always had with the Father and with the Spirit. Jesus is praying on our behalf that our belief in him would be the basis for our oneness or our unity. Think about the significance of that for just a moment. Jesus knows in this passage here, he knows that he is just about finished with his ministry on earth. He knows that it's just a matter of hours before his betrayal in the garden that would set off this course of events that would change all of human history. He's just completing his time on earth and he pauses to pray for us. And he could pray for anything. He could pray that, the, that we would one day be successful. He could pray that we as followers of Jesus wouldn't have to suffer too much. He could pray that the church would just explode or that all of Jesus' followers would have the gift of evangelism. He could pray for anything here. But Jesus' petition to God on our behalf was this, that we would be one. So how do you think we're doing with that? Well, we, we know at Hillcrest that unity in the church is one of the things that we hold in such high regard that we recognized it as a, a key marker here at Hillcrest. Last year in the fall, we did a sermon series on the ways that we identify ourselves as a church, and, and that was one of them, that we value unity over uniformity. In fact, I don't do this too often, but I would actually encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon that we did in the fall on that particular identity marker, because it helps us, I think, understand the difference between unity and uniformity, and it speaks to a lot of the division that we are seeing in the world today. We said that unity is when we are one, when we are one mind, one spirit, one purpose, one mission, one goal, all in the name of Jesus Christ. By contrast, uniformity is when we all believe the same thing and practice the same thing, when we are uniform in the way that we look and act and think and believe and behave. Unity is a biblical mandate, whereas uniformity is something that is thriving in our world right now, I think, based on fear. And that is why we keep talking about this. Now, I don't think we've done a whole sermon on the topic of unity since last fall, but we certainly talk an awful lot about it here in church. We're going to continue to. It's one of the things that we have to keep talking about because everywhere we look, this biblical mandate, this one thing that Jesus prayed here on our behalf well, the absence of it is the thing that is destroying the church and the world, for that matter. When Jesus said, I pray that all of them may be one, he wasn't teaching. He wasn't preaching. He wasn't rallying his troops. He was praying. When Jesus had the chance to intercede on our behalf, unity is the thing that he prayed for. There's this writer who said that this chapter in John, specifically John chapter 17, that this chapter gives us a glimpse into the heart of Jesus unlike any other chapter 
in all four of the Gospels. And so when we drown out all of the noise and we want to get to the very heart of what Jesus was about and what he wanted for us, this is it, that we would be one. Because Jesus prayed that it would be the same kind of unity that the disciples had and that it would be the same kind of unity that the Father, Son, and Spirit shared. Because of that, we know that this particular type of unity that Christ calls us to is one that should be visible to other people. It's something that reveals love to other people so clearly that when people see it, they should see the heart of God. When Jesus was on earth, he was the image bearer of God. He was the bearer of God's image. He was the bearer of God's glory. When Jesus left this earth, he left that task to us, the church. We are now the ones who are called to be the image bearers of God, to show God's image and to show God's glory in the world. We are the ones who are called to live in such a way that other people will know that God's love is real, that people will know that God is for them. But the thing is, people can't see that God is for them when the church is divided. And people can't see the love of Christ when Christians are at each other's throats. People can't see the glory of God when churches are arguing with each other. Which begs the question, is unity in the church even possible, given how different we all are? Maybe it's possible. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's true that we will never see that kind of unity in the church during any of our lifetimes. But here's the thing. We have to try. Not only do we have to try, but it has to be our mission and it has to be our goal because it is what, it is what Jesus wanted for us and from us. It wasn't a suggestion that was open to interpretation. We are called to be one in the church. And that takes a kind of self-sacrifice that almost feels completely foreign to our culture these days. Which, come to think of it, is probably why Jesus said that it's how people will see the glory of God. Because living as a unified body in this day and age is about as shocking a thing as we could imagine. When I preached on unity last fall, I mentioned a whole litany of things that tend to divide us these days. And yet now, on top of the polarizing division that we have allowed American politics to create, we can now add to that division the division that this pandemic has caused. Who knew that we could turn a health crisis into a political issue? Who imagined that people would be getting arrested for harassing each other about wearing masks and about not wearing masks? Who, who would have thought that parents in our own community here in DeKalb would be at each other's throats on social media regarding the decisions that administrators are trying to make about what to do with school this fall? Who would have imagined that people would be leaving their churches after disagreeing with the pastor or leadership on regathering, on their decisions on regathering as a church community? And yet, here we are. All of those things have happened in this last week alone. And so if you're watching here or online and church is new to you or faith is new to you, I want to say that I am sorry 
I know that I can't speak on behalf of the whole church at large, but I am sorry. I'm sorry that the church has not done better. I'm sorry that you're seeing as much division within the church as you are outside of it. I'm sorry that the church at large has not reflected the love of Christ in a compelling and undeniable way. And while we at Hillcrest here are far from perfect, I do think that this is something that we have worked very hard on over the past handful of years. I know that we have sat in rooms together and had difficult conversations on things that we disagree on. I know that we have chosen to stay together in seasons where others have split apart. I know that we don't all agree on all of the things, whether that's baptism or how or if we should be gathered as a church even right now. But here we are, showing up for each other while doing our best to keep each other and our neighbors safe and healthy. But I also know that when it comes to the kind of unity to which Christ has called us, we can all do better. And we must do better as individual Jesus followers and as a church community. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. And because of those things, there is one body, and we have one hope. And all of those things are represented here at the table this morning. This passage, this topic is why we chose not to do communion last week during our pre-recorded service. That's why we saved communion for today when we're together. So as we kick off this summer series, taking a look at some of the things that Jesus said, despite these words coming towards the end of his life, we needed these words to be the framework for this series, for the rest of what we do this summer, before we can talk about and understand and put to practice the rest of what Jesus said. We need to understand that unity, that oneness, was Jesus' heart for the church. That means that when we come to the table this morning, we are recognizing that this has to be the central thing that binds us together. That we can't put anything above this. Coming to the table this morning says that we are willing to put our preferences and our opinions aside for the sake of the body. Though we live in a culture where we love to claim our rights to things, this table reminds us that we have no claim on the grace or the gifts of God. This isn't the place to express our opinion. This is not the place to demand our rights. This is the place where we gather, not because we have to, but because we get to, because we are invited to. We get to feast at this table not because we have earned it in any way, but because we acknowledge that we need God's mercy and that we need God's help. At this table, we recognize that we are one and that our unity, whatever unity we do have, does not come from anything that we have done. It comes by the Spirit of God at work in us alone. We will not be one if we don't start at this table. 
We cannot be one if we don't start at this table with humility and with gratitude. And these things, humility, gratitude, unity, these are the things that God desires for us to bring from this table out into the rest of the world, into the rest of our lives. And so as we gather, and I know we're gathering in an unusual way, but at least we're gathered together. As we gather this morning, we're reminded of the night when Jesus was together with his disciples. He was in the upper room with them, and he took a loaf of bread, and he gave thanks for it, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. He said, every time you eat this bread, every time you drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. Every time we eat this bread and every time we drink this cup, we are recognizing that we stand in, need, in constant need of God's mercy and help. Let's pray together. God, we're so thankful for your, your presence at this table this morning. And for the reminder, God, that the four walls of our building was, was never what your table was about. That whether we're outside or watching from home or in our cars, wherever it is that we are right now, Lord, we are invited to your table. And so we pray, Lord, that these gifts would be reminders to us of who you are and what you have done for us, that we would be reminded through these gifts that you are enough for us, and that especially this week, Lord, we would be reminded that these gifts, God, are the only way that the church can be one, by coming to you and receiving what you have to offer. And so we give you thanks for these in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.